Well, good morning. What's up, 1045? This is, a, this is a packed house, man. Full room, full squad. Everybody's ready to go. Happy summer to you. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Apparently, I'm the Chad Myers. Good to be with you today. I'm our adult discipleship director. Wherever you're joining us, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Michigan, Canada, we believe God has something for you. For those in the room and joining us online, we're excited about today. Um, you may notice I have a, a gimpy wing. It's been a while since I've been with you, so just let's catch up just a little bit. Um, you should see the other guy. The other guy being momentum, gravity, and asphalt. I was uh, on a motorized uh, toy called a one wheel and going about 20 miles an hour and the motor stopped and I didn't. And so I just barrel rolled a bit and skidded some. I covered the worst of the road rash up. Um, This is my dominant hand. It's been really difficult to brush my teeth and eat cereal. So pray for me, it's been tough. And uh, mostly today I'm concerned in the message for the potency of my preaching because you guys know I'm a hand talker. Like I I like, you know, I'm always using my hands. How do you take somebody seriously when they're like, ah, with a brace? You, You know what I mean? Pray for that. It's uh, good to be with you as we are in our series. And, you know, we are, we transitioned from the UMC, landed in the GMC. We are kind of making sure that we are uh, getting back and maintaining our Wesleyan theology and roots. And kind of that's kind of the idea behind this series, staying grounded with who we are and who we want to be. So we've been taking a quote from John Wesley. Uh, each week, and then kind of taking that as a doctrine, as an entryway, a door to expound on something. Today, we're going to be talking about the transcendence of God, the transcendence of God. Years ago, me and my wife, we went out to a wedding in Arizona, and we were about two and a half hours away from the Grand Canyon. We'd never seen it. I'd I'd seen it in pictures, never been to it, though. And we were close enough. It's one of those things like, yeah, it's going to cost you like the gas and the time to go to at least see it, but you want to do it because when are you going to be that close again? And so uh, we, uh, we took half a day and we drove over to the Grand Canyon and it's several hours away and we're getting there. We decide which rim we're going to kind of go park at and look at and crest and we're, it's cloudy, it's misty. And I was excited, but I didn't really know what to expect. I'm kind of like wait and see kind of person. So we're coming up, coming up over the hill and right when we get over to the Grand Canyon and I look at it for the very first time. I was struck with awe and I was moved to tears. And I looked at that thing and I was not ready for that. And I was like, whoa, that is transcendence for me. In fact, we have a picture. I don't know if it already went up. Me and my wife there at the Grand Canyon, you see us there. No, that's still me. (laughs) Did it already go up? Oh, okay. Well, you already saw it. That was me and my wife at the Grand Canyon. Uh, good, good job on the back. You're already ahead of me. And uh, I was moved to tears, and I thought, whoa, beauty had pierced through. It was transcendent. It was transcendent. We're hardwired to seek the transcendent, to pursue something that feels like out of our human, out of our normal experience. A lot of people seek transcendence in different ways. Some people seek transcendence through a fresh coat of snow on the Rockies and powder. Some people seek transcendence through big waves at the beach, through fashion or maybe the next Netflix show. Some people kind of use maybe a darker path to seek transcendence, like I'll just have one more drink. People turn to illicit sex and drugs because it often gives them that rush of something powerful other than. But we all seek transcendence in different ways 
We're wired to pursue it. And when we talk about transcendence, we're talking about the existence or experience beyond the normal or physical level. And by definition, when we speak of God, we are speaking of transcendence because he's not human. He supersedes the human limitations, the human expectations. He's infinite. We're finite. He's self-sufficient. We're, we're dependent creatures. He's not us. So when we talk about God, we're talking about a transcendent, greater than, bigger than, other than who we are. And Wesley said it like this, and it's a brilliant quote. He said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. And he uses one of the lowest life forms on the food chain. Like, show me a worm that can comprehend what a human being is, and then he turns it, I will, then you can show me a human being who can actually comprehend the triune God. He's not saying we can't know anything, but he's absolutely saying we can't know everything. That God is deep and complex and wise beyond our ability to articulate him. He's transcendent. The biblical authors understood this very well. Isaiah 40, says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Consider Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The term for that is omnipresent, like God is everywhere. There's nowhere we can go where God is not. There's no place in history where God hasn't been there. There's no place in future where God will not be. One of the classic places for this uh, concept is the text of Isaiah 55, eight through nine. It says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf and he is employing a figure of speech. It's a comparison between two things using like or as. All of my fellow nerds help me out. Any comparison between two things using like or as is a? It's a simile. Good job. Be confident. You got it. It's a simile. He says, as... The heavens, and he's not talking about heaven, he's talking about sky, clouds, stars, moon, sun. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so we're meant to, it's meant to impact us, we're meant to walk outside, go ahead and take a look and be like, yeah, it's pretty high. So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So are my ways higher than your ways. We are not alike. I'm other. I'm transcendent. I'm creator God. When we talk about transcendence, it's, um, if you want to get a feel for the transcendence of God, you often have to read some pastors and scholars and theologians from several hundred years ago. 
Because you go back a little bit in the history of theology several hundred years ago, and they got transcendence. They wrote about it. They drank it. They talked about it. It was everywhere for them. And then I think perhaps as a, hey, that's true, but let's not forget the, the counterpoint to that, that God is both transcendent and God is imminent. So God is other, and yet God is close, God is Jesus, and so he is love, he is compassion, he is incarnational, he can relate to us, he became flesh, and now we've kind of maybe swung the pendulum too far the other way, where we've overemphasized God's closeness, that it's a good thing that today we're going to talk about a recovery of the transcendence of God, because when we recover this greatness of who God is, we actually are filled with more wonder and awe. We look at the world differently, we look at the mirror differently, we look at each other differently, we're filled with a sense of all. We're also filled with a sense of God's holiness. So it might cause us to make some choices differently in our life as opposed to, well, it doesn't really matter. There's no consequences and no consequences in the afterlife. So I'll just do whatever I please and live for myself. And when we recover the transcendence of God, we see the beauty and the greatness of God in his reign. I wanna talk about three ways that we experience the transcendence of God, and then I wanna talk briefly about three proper responses to God's transcendence. First, we experience God's transcendence in creation. In creation, in everything that he has made, in every, every small and tiny little creature to the greatest mountain, to the most powerful thunderstorm, to the strongest hurricane, to the gentlest breeze, we see the transcendence of God in creation. We have a, a hummingbird feeder right outside of our back window. And uh, my wife makes this, apparently it's a really good uh, hummingbird concoction. Uh, I ask the hummingbirds, I guess, they show up all the time and they're always drinking. It's just like sugar and sugar. It's middle school food. It's like sugar and sugar and sugar and water. And uh, so she makes this great concoction and we see the hummingbirds all the time. So when we wake up in the morning, we can look out the back window, there's hummingbirds there. And yesterday afternoon, I was sitting having some coffee about 3.30 and uh, we saw hummingbirds come in and they're fighting over the drink, the great sugar water, you know. And it, science tells us that hummingbirds, they make that the humming sound, obviously, um, because they can flap their wings, get this, 80 times per second. In one second, a hummingbird flaps its wings 80 times a second. And there's a hummingbird known as a ruby-throated hummingbird. And during mating season, when the hummingbirds are really interested in each other, that ruby-throated hummingbird can flap his wings 200 times a second. Consider the bumblebee. But you might have heard the story about the bumblebee that it's just scientifically impossible for them to fly because their bodies are really big and their wings are really small and that just doesn't make any sense and they can lift like two and a half times their body weight in pollen. But recent research has actually taught us that no, they are able to fly because of the way that their wings flap. They don't just flap up and down, but they kind of flap in a circular motion and they are able to simultaneously rotate their wings as they flap them. So quite literally, they are creating a turbulence like a mini hurricane underneath their body that allows them to fly. They can also flap their wings about 200 times a second. Consider the diving bell spider. It's a spider that can actually live in the bottom of the ponds in South America. You won't want to swim there. There's spiders down there. It comes to the top and it gets oxygen and it creates these little bubbles filled with oxygen. And because of its fur underneath its legs and its abdomen, it takes these oxygen bubbles down into the bottom of the lake and it survives off the oxygen underwater. 
Consider the greatness and the beauty and the grandness of God's creation. Did you know that the earth, the earth has the brilliance of God's wisdom in it, the slant of it? Tilted at an angle of 23 degrees produces our seasons. Scientists tell us that if the earth had not been tilted exactly like that, vapors from the oceans would move both north and south, piling up continents of ice. If the moon were only 50,000 miles away instead of 200,000, the tides would be so enormous that all continents would be submerged in water, even the mountains would be eroded. If the crust of the earth had been only 10 foot thicker, there would be no oxygen and without it, all animal life would die. Had the oceans been a few feet deeper, carbon dioxide and oxygen would have been absorbed and no vegetable life would exist. The earth's weight has been estimated at six sextillion tons. That's a six with 21 zeros. Yet it is perfectly balanced and turns easily on its axis. It revolves daily at the rate of more than a thousand miles an hour or 25,000 miles each day. That's about 9 million miles a year. Considering the tremendous weight of six sextillion tons, rolling at this fantastic speed around an invisible axis, held in place by unseen bands of gravitation, the words of Job 26, 7 ring true. He poised the earth on nothingness. And Job goes on to say, and stick with me for this passage, it's a bit lengthy, but listen up. What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? God is inviting Job into his great transcendence. Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Is it you, Job? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? He's naming off constellations. Please, as an aside, let us not make the mistake of assuming that just because they lived thousands of years ago that they did not have a very sophisticated intellect and wisdom. They were very brilliant. So let us not commit what C.S. Lewis calls as chronological snobbery. All right, back to the text. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? And the answer for Job and us is most emphatically, no, we cannot. We don't have the authority. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the power. No, we cannot do that. We see God's transcendence in the natural world, but not just in the natural world, nature. We see God's transcendence in each other. The Bible says that we are made in God's image, that we are image bearers, that in one sense, if we look hard enough at each other and carefully enough, it's like a window into the divine. Like we can experience the otherness of God in the presence of each other. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, put it like this. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. 
To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We can meet God in each other if we look hard enough. But often, we get people wrong, don't we? We kind of do the opposite. We get people wrong on the way to the meeting, and then we get them wrong in the meeting. And then when we leave and we go home and talk about it, we get them wrong again. Don't worry, everybody's repaying the favor. But if we look hard enough and we're curious enough and we're humble enough, and we give each other the benefit of the doubt. And we don't assume that just because this is the way I think and feel and do things, that that's the way you feel and think and do things. And if we ask enough questions and we genuinely care, we might be scrubbing off the window so that we could get a better picture of this otherness of God. God shows his transcendence in creation. We also experience the transcendence of God in the stories of scripture in the stories of scripture. So we recently did a four-week class, uh, me and some others on the pastoral team, and it was how to interpret the Bible. And so we just wrapped it up this last week. And one of the things that we really stressed in this class was this, the Bible is meant to be read as a story. Before we take, take the little verses here and there for our own devotional purposes, and that's not a bad thing, but before we do that, the Bible is written as a story. It has a cohesiveness to it. There's continuity and themes that run from beginning to end that tie it all together, and we're meant to read it as such. I'm not saying it's not true, but we're meant to read these stories as a story, and it's meant to have an affective change upon us. It, when we read it like that in big scopes and large swaths, it gets into our mind, it gets into our body, it gets into to our heart, and it changes us. It, and these stories invite us to live and lean differently in the world. Consider Abraham, the story of Abraham. God calls him to leave his father's household, to leave everything he knows, to go to a land that he's never seen before, to go to a distant place, and God says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and through you, um, I'll create a great nation, and I'll bless the world through you. Well, you have to have children to have a great nation and Abraham doesn't have a child. And so 90 years later, because God promised it, he gives him an heir named Isaac. And then after Isaac grows up a little bit, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And you're like, whoa, whoa, maybe I can't pin this God down. It's, uh, he's, he's kind of, you know, out of the box a little bit. There was a story of a pastor teaching on Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and he was teaching a Sunday school, and he went through this passage, and uh, then he began to break it down a little bit and tell about the you know, uh, predominance of child sacrifice amongst the Canaanites at that time, and everyone's kind of quiet, and they're kind of awkward um, because it's an awkward story, and then the pastor's like, well, what does this mean for us, though? And one guy chimed in. He says, well, I'll tell you what it means for me and my family. It means we're going to a different church. And the pastor's kind of taken it back. He says, well, what do you mean by that? And he says, because when I look at that God, the God of Abraham, I feel like I'm near a real God. 
Not the sort of dignified, business-like, rotary club God we chatter about here on Sunday mornings. Abraham's God could shatter a person's heart and then put it back together. Give and then take a child. Ask for everything from a person and still want more. I want to know that God. Consider the story of Moses. Moses commits murder. He flees from his hometown. Goes out into the desert and becomes a shepherd for 40 years. Till one day, the transcendence of God meets him in the wilderness in the burning bush experience. Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. God meets Moses and God says, you're gonna go deliver my people. I've heard their cry. And Moses says, I'm not sure if you got the right person. I'm a shepherd. I'm not well-versed and it's an emancipation thing. And he goes back and forth a little bit and God says, no, I'm gonna use you. I'm gonna use your brother and you're gonna go and you are going to use your voice to stand up for injustice, against injustice, to the most powerful nation on the history of the world at this time. And these stories shape us. Consider the story of Solomon. David says, God, I want to build you a temple. And God says to David, well, you're not going to build me a temple. Solomon's going to build me a temple. So Solomon builds this very exquisite temple, which is where uh, the center of life would have been for the Israelite people. And after he builds this temple, they dedicate it to God. And when they dedicate it to God, God shows up in rare form. And the transcendence of God, the Shekinah glory of God fills the temple. And it's like smoke. And it says that the priests couldn't even perform their duties. There's no hymns. There's no hymn sing. There's no prayers. There's no worship songs. Uh, there's no sermon. Everyone is just prostrate on the ground in silence because the glory of God filled the temple. And that's the only proper response. Consider the story of Isaiah. God's people had gone astray. They'd worshiped other idols. They'd followed bad kings. And God raises up Isaiah and he says, hey, I want you to go call my people back. Before he does, though, he gives him this heavenly vision. And Isaiah sees the throne room open. And likely it's Jesus on the throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. And he sees the angels and they're shouting, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, their, shout, their shouts are shaking the threshold of the temple. And Isaiah falls on his face, calls on curses on himself. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, then an angel comes and he takes tongs and he goes to the altar and he takes a coal from the altar. Now, what's on the altar? Sacrifice. So what's stripped? down onto the cold blood. So he takes the blood on the coal and he goes and he cleanses Isaiah's lips and he says, now I've forgiven you, I've, I've redeemed you. You are now set forth in your calling to go and speak on God's behalf. I remember hearing that passage preached on uh, Passion 99. Passion was a, is a, a college gathering it had just started in 1998 down in the Houston, Austin area, and then it was moved to Dallas in 99, and me and our college ministry went, and there was about 12,000 college students there, and we're worshiping, we're hearing great teaching, and I remember someone talking on Isaiah 6, and the holiness, the otherness, the transcendence, the bigness of God, and I remember that last night that me and my friends came down front, and we just wept, and we prayed, and we talked, and we said to each other, we'll never be the same, we'll never be the same, will never be the same. And we weren't. Because this transcendent God, this other God broke through and we learned about it in the stories of scripture and he came to meet us in real life. We read about Jesus turning water to wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. They even said about Jesus teaching, whoa, this guy's teaching has authority. 
even in his words, he's transcendent. And then we see the Holy Spirit continue the power of the resurrection through the acts of the apostles. And finally, we get to the bookend of Revelation where the story is closed. And we see worship, adoration, bowing down, healing, true life. The redeemed community of faith properly situated in their story with the author of the story, reflecting his goodness and his beauty and his transcendence. The stories of scripture, we meet God in those places and it shows us how he meets us in our everyday life. We experience the transcendence of God finally in suffering. This one may not be a very popular point. You're tracking with me like, oh, experience of God and creation, that's awesome. Story of scripture, I'm with you. Suffering, wah, wah. As Trevor said, um, a lot of middle schoolers just went on uh, the mission trip. I just wanna say thank you to our staff, our youth staff, all of our volunteers who took a week and they went. We blessed that team with three of our own middle schoolers. I mean, we blessed that team. We gave them three of ours and they were on that trip. And um, one of ours, the youngest, she's, she's, this was her, gonna be her first week away from home. Just first week away, away from mom and dad, away from her own room, all of her comforts. She's the most prepared kid we got. So like on road trips, we're always like, hey, um, does Izzy have snacks for everyone? And uh, Izzy, someone needs a drink. Can you share your watch? She's always the most prepared kid. She loves to know what's happening, what's coming next. So she was very packed and prepared for this trip. And yet she had never done this. She had never gone to this place called Kentucky and, uh, you know, gone on a mission trip. And so she came last Sunday morning. She was very wide-eyed. Kind of like a lot of these middle schoolers, like just very wide-eyed, like what are, what are we doing? What do we expect? Kind of what's going on? And I saw it in her face and I saw the discomfort. And immediately I started to pray, God, how, how can we pray for these kids this week? And I started to pray this, God, a lot of these kids are gonna be totally out of their comfort zone. You know, sleeping on air mattresses that aren't gonna stay inflated through the night no AC, whatever it is. I said, I don't want you to take away the discomfort. I want you to use the discomfort to show them who you really are, to show them a picture of your greatness. You see, when we get out of our comfort zone and God stretches us and we're not used to doing life like that or I'm not used to thinking that way or I'm not used to having to do this, it's when those moments that God breaks through those kind of cracks in our world and he says, oh, I've been wanting to show you this about me. I've been wanting to teach you a deeper lesson about your faith. I'm inviting you to see that. And, and most of the time, most of the time whenever pain or discomfort enters our life, our first prayer is like, oh, how, do we, how can God get rid of that? Like, I get that. That's a normal human thing. Like, God, how do you get rid of that? I don't want to feel that. We don't want to go through that. Let's get rid of this, this discomfort. But here's the reality. God uses suffering and pain. They're his greatest teachers to teach us the deeper lessons of faith, the deeper providence of God. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are able to turn and see, oh, all the way my Savior's led me. He is a good shepherd. We get to learn lessons that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. God uses suffering to show us his greatness his otherness, 
You remember the Apostle Paul, he persecuted the church. He was happy to persecute the church. He was certain he was on the right side. I'm happy to hand over Christians to jail and and sign off on their death and rejoice that I'm doing the right thing on God's behalf with great zeal. And what happened on the road to Damascus? He met the risen Savior and immediately what happened? He went blind. Sight to no sight, just like that. Can you imagine? Is this going to last forever? Is this temporary? Is it permanent? What's going on? I'm used to seeing. I can't see now. What's going on? Can you imagine the discomfort, the pain? What happens? And it was through his blindness that he actually, truly came to see. He saw the truth about who Jesus was. He saw the truth about his own sin. He saw the truth about the world and how he needed to change Small wonder that he writes in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Granted, the Greek word is charis. It's where we get the word grace. It means a gracious gift. Paul says it's a gracious gift that God gives to us not only to believe, but also to suffer. Why? Because in those places, we actually learn about who God really is. Otherwise, we would just kind of shrink our world and narrow our minds and we would stay small and we would be really, really comfortable. And it would be really, really bad for our soul. So God opens us up through discomfort and pain to show us who he really is. We experience the transcendence of God in creation. We experience the transcendence of God in the stories of scripture. And we experience his transcendence in suffering. So what is our only proper response? What do we do with this? Firstly, humble repentance. Humble repentance. Maybe repentance for you today simply looks like this. You are God and I am not. And I accept my limitations, my finiteness. I accept that I can't figure everything out. I accept that I can't figure that other person completely out. I don't get to know their heart and their mind unless they tell me. I don't even get to know everything that's going on inside of me. I don't even get to know why you're doing everything you're doing in the world or in my own personal life unless you reveal it. So I will humbly accept that you're God and I'm not. And maybe repentance also looks like you are other and you are holy. And because of that, I see now that there are things in my life that they shouldn't be there. So help me keep battling. Help me keep fighting for faithfulness. Help me keep struggling to walk with you well. I think it also looks like total allegiance. Total allegiance. Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when we really experience the transcendence of God, as the Bible says, it says, taste and see that he is good. And I believe once you see, you can't unsee. And once you taste, you can't untaste. Once that really happens, we start to realize that there's some loyalties that we need to lay down. We're no longer loyal to our own ego our own fake construct that we put up so everyone will admire and no one will really know us. We're no longer loyal to that success and that fame and that power and that wealth and that status. 
We say, God, those are gracious gifts you've given us and you've enabled me to do that, but I lay them down because ultimately you get my allegiance and you get my ultimate loyalty. Use those things. Those things are subservient. Actually help them to serve you also. And lastly, it looks like perpetual pursuit. We're gonna continue to pursue transcendence. I pray that we pursue it in God and that we pursue him. And that when we experience transcendence in the natural world, we realize it's a window into who he is and his greatness. That we let go of the lesser pleasures and the darker past that we've chosen because yeah, they may give a quick high and a quick hit, but in the long run, it's self-destructive. And we start to say, God, I'm gonna pursue you. Whatever come, whatever may be, I'm gonna chase hard and I'm gonna follow after you. Will you become a God chaser? No matter what comes, no matter what will be, will you perpetually pursue him because he is creator God and we are not. The Bible says that the mountains sing for joy and the trees clap their hands. All creation reflects his infinite wisdom and his beauty and his glory, his otherness. And so do we in a sense, but we also have a choice. We get to join in the chorus of all creation and say, me too, so will I. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your scriptures. We thank you for your stories. We thank you for the beauty we see in all of creation. Father, my prayer for us today is that you would surprise us. God, surprise us when we least expect it. Break through in the mundane and the often drudgery nine to five of our daily lives. Break through and show us who you are. Give us a chance to see your otherness. As Moses said, show me your glory. We pray that, show us your glory. Father, for those who've been on the road for a long time and we're just tired or we're battered or we're, our hearts are feeling cold or dry, I pray for revival. I pray your spirit revive us and renew us and lift us up and set our feet on a rock and lift our eyes to see the goodness of who you are. Father, I pray for your courage, your strength, your perseverance to fill us, shape us into who we need to be Help us joyfully accept that we are not you and in many ways we can't comprehend who you are. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.